Well, just a reminder where we are in Ephesians, we've crossed the midway point. Remember in chapters 1 through 3, we learned Christ, who is the truth. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we're in chapter 4 right now, uh, we're learning how to walk in love after the example of Christ, who is the truth. And in our passage this morning, Paul's concerned that the way we develop behavior, that it's worthy of God. He's called us to walk in a manner worthy of God. Our life should look gloriously different from our former lives, and our lives should look gloriously different from the lives of unbelievers outside of the church and the world around us. We're not supposed to blend in. We're supposed to stand out. Our lives should reflect the love that God has shown to us. And this is how God loved us, by sending his only begotten son so that those who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This love is the foundational virtue to all of the other virtues that are being formed in our Christian character. So let's pick up and read in chapter 4. I want us to go ahead and start in verse 17 uh, through 5-2. We'll be focusing on verse 25 through 5-2. But they kind of go together. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, if you want to grab your sermon outline, you can follow along. You'll see that I've subdivided the section into three, the text into three sections. Uh, this walk in love defined, then described and then summarized, and you'll see this sermon theme. Actually, I might have revised this sermon theme. If this is different from what's printed in your bulletin, uh, you've got to pick which one you like better. In Christ, we are to develop behavior that is worthy of God, gloriously different from the behavior of unbelievers, and reflects the love of God given to us 
in the sacrifice of Christ. So let's define this walking in love. The first verse, 25, uh, it is one of the put-on, put-off verses, but it it works in such a way that it kind of sets the tone and defines what's taking place. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, first we need to recognize that Paul is writing to the church. Remember, that's the audience, believers, the individual believers in the body of Christ, the family of God. In its simplest form, this command is for us to not tell lies, but to speak the truth to each other. Because we're a family. Julie and I raised two boys, and from the moment they learned how to speak, we began to learn how to teach them not to lie. The two just kind of have to go together. My parents raised two boys, plus four girls. So in my home, if I lied probably about breaking something mom told me not to touch, or about using dad's hammer and not putting it back. Tools actually do rust when you leave them outside overnight. Right? If I lied about any of those things, there were five other potential suspects in the house. You know, so you weigh your chances. But somehow, they knew to come to me. It was a mom and dad superpower thing. Kids, mom and dad have superpowers about detecting lies. None of us teach our kids to lie, do we? So why do they do it? Why did we do it? Because lying is such a useful sin. It is so useful. Because lying, we can use it to avoid punishment, I did not do that bad thing, but I did. We can use it to gain praise. I did not do that good thing, or I did do that good thing, but I didn't. We lie to people to make them think about us in a way that does not correspond to reality. We lie to create a new identity. But it's a false identity, which means we build false relationships in the family. So Paul says, put away falsehood. Put away falsehood. You see, it's not just the individual lies, but living lives based on falsehood that we must put off. That's what we have to put off. Because that's not how we learned Christ. We learned the truth in Christ, not falsehood. And so as believers, we're to be characterized Not by falsehood, but by speaking the truth. Honesty builds trust. You know that, right? Honesty builds trust. So the absence of telling lies and the practice of telling truths lays the foundation of trust in the family of God. Where did Paul get this useful insight? Well, the entire clause is a quotation from Zechariah Chapter 8, verse 16. Turn to Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. I know, he's one of the minor prophets. He's just a couple of books back from Matthew. I'll give you a second to get there. This is a, this is a prophecy looking forward to a time when God will dwell with his people. So presence and purity have to be a part of that. I'm going to read uh, verses 16 to 23. We're just going to get the gist of this beginning in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. 
These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath, for all of these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness, cheerful feasts, therefore love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come. Even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to see the Lord of hosts. I myself am am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men will come from nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard about the God that is with you. Listen, God's people are to speak truth. God hates all forms of falsehood. It's always been this way. The people's worship of God, that's all of those feasts. Feast after feast after feast through the year that bring joy and gladness are all based in our loving truth and peace. And what will happen? That was the last section. Well, unbelievers, Gentiles, people from all of the nations will come to Jerusalem, the city of truth, saying, let us go with you, for God is with you. That's pretty amazing. It's the background of what Paul's talking about here. The way we talk to one another reflects the way we live with one another. Putting away falsehood and speaking and living the truth we learned in Christ has far-reaching implications. And notice this. Paul could have said, Don't lie, tell the truth, because the truth is the very nature of God. That would have been right. Or he could have said, don't lie and tell the truth, because Christ is the truth. And that would be right. But Paul says, don't lie and tell the truth, because it's absolutely foundational and indispensable that trust is among the members of the body of Christ for the unity and for the building up of the brotherhood. He says it's the character of the church. It's the need of the church. It is the nature of the church to put away falsehood, to live truth so that we might have honesty and peace among one another. That's the defining reason for putting off falsehood and living together in truth. That's what this putting off and putting on series that Paul has does for us. And now Paul gives us five more commands to put off the old corrupt self and to put on what we are, the new self in Christ. This is how we get along in the body. These are social virtues that will help us to be the family of God. Look at verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now Paul is quoting Psalm 4, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. But the context of that psalm is David's distress over the people's idolatry. Anger is different from the other vices that Paul tells us to put off. Anger is a valid emotion. 
In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, the Pharisees were judgmental of Jesus because he healed a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So there may be occasions when anger is appropriate. We refer to it as righteous indignation, right? A righteous anger against a sin. There is much in this fallen world to be appropriately angry about. But often those are not the things that we get angry about. So Paul warns us that anger is dangerous and it's volatile. We are not allowed to let anger go on unchecked. Especially between brothers and sisters in the church. Remember James' admonition. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our anger has to be counterbalanced. And Paul offers two counterbalances. First, we need to recognize that there's a kind of anger that brings about sinful behavior. Sometimes we express our anger with sinful motives, like when our pride is injured, or out of envy towards others, or spite towards others. And this kind of anger is never appropriate. Jesus was never angry in those ways. The second counterbalance is that we can't allow anger to to linger over time. It's not supposed to hang around. It's dangerous to allow anger to go beyond a reasonable time limit, like when the sun goes down. If you don't deal with your anger today, you place yourself in a vulnerable position. You're walking on shaky ground. What is that vulnerable position? You give the devil a place in your heart. I didn't make that up. Paul said it. You give the devil a place in your heart. That should be sobering to us. Who's supposed to be in our heart? In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul calls the devil the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the old sinful self followed him. The new self, Paul tells us, is being filled with the fullness of God and with the fullness of Christ. So we must do everything, even address our anger, to resist the devil becoming a tenant in what is the home of the Holy Spirit. This should be a great motivator for us to be slow to anger, not to nurse our anger, not to sin in anger. Giving place to the devil would stunt our spiritual growth. We would experience less renewing of our minds and more corruption through evil uh, thoughts and desires. And so put off anger and put on righteousness. The next put on put off is in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, you shall not steal uh, is the Eighth Commandment, so that's Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. It seems that there may have been some in the church who continued to steal after coming to saving faith. I mean, after all, they were filthy Gentiles, right? For them, this is going to be a radical 
lifestyle shift. Stop thieving, start working. You have to stop taking and start laboring. And the word Paul uses here is to work hard, to work to the point of exhaustion, be a hard worker. God commanded us to work, remember, before the fall. So it's not because of sin that we have to work. That's not it. It's God's plan for us that we would labor and be productive. And so Paul tells the Thessalonian church, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we we command and encourage in the Lord Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own wage. And here Paul says there's even more to work than just meeting your own needs. And what's that? The purpose of our labor is to have extra with which to help others in need. Think of the early days of the church in Jerusalem after Pentecost when the believers willingly, voluntarily brought their money and their resources to the apostles to distribute to those in need because they were being persecuted for having followed Christ. And Paul goes on to instruct us to love one another with words. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Words have the power to hurt or to help. Corrupting talk is more literally filthy words. Filthy words. Words like that are rotten like the smell of rancid fish or putrid like rotten fruit. You're meant to have that in your mind and you're meant to imagine those scents and that stench in your nostrils. Words that cause you to recoil from the stench. Filthy words have a lasting harmful stench. We wish we could unhear them, but we can't. And so Paul hopes that when we think of our corrupt talk in that way, we'd be willing and eager to put it off. Don't say those kinds of words. Don't say those kinds of words. And instead, we would speak good words that can edify one another. Each of us has been given a ministry in the body to build one another up in faith and unity and love. Paul's taught us that. We should speak encouraging and helpful words to one another as fits the occasion or as meets the need at that moment which suggests that we need to be attentive to one another's needs and concerns so that we can offer right words at the right time. You see, there's got to be this relational grounding among the people of God so that we know what would be a good word to speak, what would be a gracious word to speak at the right time. Words that give grace to one another can also be words of prayer. You can pray for someone. Right there, out loud, so they can hear your words while you're with them. That doesn't take some special gifting, but it sure makes someone feel cared for in a difficult situation. It would be a shame to withhold gracious words of prayer for the brethren, wouldn't it? Pray words of grace for one another. Do it regularly. And Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, who is your guarantee. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is kind of a counterbalance to 
don't give a place to the devil, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. God is with us by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live a holy life. He, the Holy Spirit, is a person, and he marks us as belonging to God. These things should motivate us to put off and put on as Paul directs us so that we will live lives that are consistent with God's call. When we don't, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Paul is echoing the language of Isaiah chapter 63. In Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9, Isaiah recalls the Exodus. So he's thinking back to the Exodus, God bringing his people out of Egypt, and how God redeemed his people with love and mercy. He says this, In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But even after God saved them, they rebelled against him in the desert. The next verse is verse 10 in Isaiah 63. But they rebelled and they grieved the Holy Spirit. Paul recognizes that the New Testament people of God face a similar danger. We're not out of the woods yet. We face a similar temptation. We too have been redeemed by God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, chapter 1. And we too run the risk of rebelling against him and grieving his Holy Spirit by not putting off the old man as we've been commanded to, by not putting on the new man as we've been commanded to. The Spirit is the seal of our salvation and the earnest deposit of God within us until the day of our redemption. I can't tell you that to value that too highly. The presence of God dwells within you. We don't want anything to happen to that seal, right? And Paul knows that every true believer cannot break the seal. The Holy Spirit does not depart when we commit sin. Instead, our sin grieves him, which should motivate us all the more to put off our old sinful behavior and to cherish the Holy Spirit of God, the presence of God within us, and take joy in the guarantee of our salvation. Now in verses 31 and 32, Paul, Paul has kind of an onslaught of vices that we need to put off. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This seems to be a bit of a progression from inward bitterness and anger that results in outward harmful actions and speech. So there's kind of a Kind of a cascading avalanche there. We see this in our culture all the time, don't we? Do you see bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander? Okay. Anybody not see that? Is there anywhere you can go where you can get away from that? Well, hopefully right here. We see it all over our culture, all over people, with greater frequency, it seems, and increasing intensity, it seems, and it's often based on falsehood, which is where Paul began. This is the danger of that unrighteous anger that Paul was warning us about. But it can't be that way in the church. It can't be that way with you. We know bitterness as a, a, a terrible, sour taste in our mouth. 
Psalm 10 verse 7 tells us that a wicked person has a mouthful of curses, lies, and threats. That's bitter. We're unlikely to speak words of grace to one another if we're bitter towards one another. Wrath and anger often appear together in Scripture. The word wrath could be translated rage. We've all experienced rage and anger. Proverbs 29 verse 8 tells us that it is a fool who gives full vent to his anger, but that's who's being described here. It's unlikely we will love someone while in an angry rage against them. All of this leads to abusive talk and malicious actions towards brothers and sisters in the church. That's who Paul's talking to. He's talking to us and how we relate to one another. How could it possibly come to this? How could it come to brothers and sisters behaving this way? Well, in Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Comes out of the hard heart. Paul knows that sometimes we can be mean-spirited towards one another. We can't take for granted that we will always get along easily and without effort. We need to actively give attention to putting off ugly attitudes, sharp words, curt behaviors from our lives. They're destructive to the body. Instead, we must determine to be kind and tender-hearted towards one another. Be kind. Be tender-hearted towards one another. This is the foundation for our life together in the family of God, that we would be this way. Kindness is an attribute of God. We should be kind to one another as our Heavenly Father has been kind to us. And kindness will displace all things that are malicious. If you're kind, you're not malicious. So be kind. Displace maliciousness. As believers, our hard hearts have been replaced by tender hearts. They have already been. God has taken out the heart of stone and put in a a heart of flesh that's sensitive to his spirit. We just need to be resolved to be tender hearted towards one another. God and Christ are both described as tender and mercy in Scripture. And the Apostle Peter tells all of us to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Yes, we should put those things on. We should put those things on. But, but what about, you ask, when a brother or sister actually sins against me? Well, before Peter got so wise and started writing letters, he asked Jesus a similar question, you might remember. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter asked the Lord, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Peter thought he was generous in forgiveness. I'll go up to seven, he says. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Aghast, right? In other words, there is no limit to forgiveness in the church towards one another. There is no limit in the church in forgiveness towards one another. I wonder if there's a person in the church who you think has sinned against you and you've just decided to distance yourself for now. 
to separate him or her from your love for the brethren. Thinking that if only the rest of us knew how justified you are in your bitterness and malice, that we would agree with you. But Jesus would not agree. And he sent the Apostle Paul to remind us that each of us are to be characterized by forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's who we are and what we do. We are those whose sins have been forgiven. And so we are those who are free and willing and able to forgive one another. Paul's going to summarize this in chapters 1 and 2 of, or excuse me, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Therefore, or in summation, Paul says, based on all this, let me sum it up for you, be imitators of God your Father because you're his children whom he loves. Like father, like son or daughter, right? It's our goal. We should, re- we should resemble the holy family. First of all, we should be amazed that we have been called to imitate God. I mean, it must be that there's something in place that we could actually move in that direction, right? To be imitators of God? It's astounding for us to consider that before the foundation of the world, God chose to make us holy and blameless before Him. That's the way we imitate God, in holiness and blamelessness. Paul laid it out back in chapter 1. This is what it means when Scripture calls us to be holy as God is holy. And when Jesus tells us to be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. It means this. Be imitators of God. Jesus even says, love your enemies and do good to them, for you will be sons of the Most High. It's your destiny, it's your inheritance as children of God, to be forgivers as you've been forgiven. Under the Old Covenant, it would have been obvious that we should imitate the holiness of God, because that's expressed in His law, but in the New Covenant, we're even called to imitate His love. Imitate his holiness and his love. Again, verse 2. Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's our example. He's our example. Love for the brethren is the hallmark of Christianity. Love for the brethren is the hallmark of Christianity. Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. You read it again. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's there. It's there. You've been loved by God with the love of God that now dwells within you. Because God has loved us in Christ and both God and Christ dwell within us by the Holy Spirit, we now have the capacity to love, even as God loves. 
Let me say it this way. We have the ability to love and forgive one another far more abundantly than we think according to the power of God that is at work within us. Just applying what Paul said at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 to what he said right here in Ephesians chapter 5. We have the ability to love and forgive one another far more abundantly than we think according to the power of God that is at work within us. The new self can love. And so Jesus commands our new selves to love one another as I have loved you. John chapter 15, verse 12. And Paul, we, watch, we can watch Paul put on that command of Jesus in uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the ultimate demonstration of love in Christ is Jesus laying down his life for his people to sacrifice himself on the cross as the payment for their sins, to bring about the forgiveness of their sins and usher them into a right relationship with God. He's the perfect example of love. If you're here this morning and you have not experienced that love, if you have not turned to Christ and repented of your sin, turned from your sins and turned to Him and asked for forgiveness, if you have not believed in the truth of His sin-atoning death and His life-giving resurrection, if you have not committed your soul to Christ, What is it that you're holding back for? Because what you get is the very love of God. My goodness. There's nothing like that. Only cheap, corrupt counterfeits in this world. If you're loving this world and the things in this world, you're accepting a cheap, corrupt counterfeit that is impure and defiling. It's getting worse, not better. And God offers this love. Here's love. It's the love of Christ who died for your sins to restore you to a right relationship with God, your creator and the giver of life. You can have that love and live that love and be loved by him and love him back and learn how to love others in a way that the world can't love. In the way that you can't love without Christ, but in the way that you can, beyond what you ever imagined, with Christ. Do the cost-benefit analysis. This is an easy one. But it's an important one. I appeal to you. I appeal to you. Turn to the love of God in Christ. Jesus' sacrifice was effective to propitiate the wrath of God against our sins, to stay the wrath of God against our sins. But it was also something else that Paul describes. It was an an offering. Unlike sacrifice, the word offering usually means a voluntary offering. So in the the Old Testament, you have the 
the sacrifices for sin, but you have the offerings for thanksgiving and for fellowship. That's Old Testament sacrificial imagery applied to Jesus, that he is not only the sin atoning sacrifice, but that his loving sacrifice to redeem sinners was was accepted by God because it was this, this beautiful aroma to God. That's God's acceptance of Christ. A voluntary offering that brings not only forgiveness of sins, but fellowship, restoration, God with us. He replaced the stinging stench of our sin with the pleasing aroma of his sacrificial love. Let me just wrap up in a couple of ways. So Paul says we're to walk in a manner worthy of God. Growing in unity and experiencing Christ's love together with one another. We're to put off the old self, to put on the new self by the renewing of our minds in Christ. And all of these things is how we learned Christ. Remember in the text last night, we learned Christ because he's truth. And we're learning the truth that we're not to be bitter and malicious. We're meant to be righteous and gracious. And we can This is the new self that we put on. Our new creation, our identity in Christ. It has been given to us, but we have to actually live it out in real time. We have to do these things. We have to choose goodness over evil. We have to choose humility over pride. We have to choose kind words that build up instead of mean words. We need to put away falsehood. Even even the falsehood that we deceive ourselves with sometimes. And live in truth. Live in truth. Honestly with one another. It's our shared identity as the one new man that Paul talked about in chapter 2. We are the one new man built in Christ. We're in Christ and we have peace because Christ is our peace. We are the church, the body of Christ being built into a holy temple in which God dwells by His Spirit. And what's especially true about our new identity is that we're forgivers. We're forgivers. Who is it on earth that forgives the church? The body of Christ forgives as Christ forgave. The body of Christ loves as Christ loved. That's us. So let's walk in sacrificial love for one another. That is our fragrant offering to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're astounded that you would give us so much of your attention. That you would sacrifice your Son to save us from our sins. But that you would recreate us, that you would make us your workmanship in Christ so that we would walk out good works, do good things, say good things, that you would put us together, not leave us apart, but put us together so that we're joined and working together, functioning together as one body in Christ, and in that way, building ourselves up in truth and holiness and love that comes from Christ the head. 
And so, Father, we, we simply ask that you would help us as Paul prayed, that we might understand and have the knowledge of this, that we might truly experience the love of Christ in our lives. And Lord, that you would indeed be working in us so that we would not give the devil a place and that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, but that we would be putting off the old self and putting on the new as you make us holy and blameless before you. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.